welcome everyone to our roundtable series uh, with today's uh, topic of um, academic integrity in, in the virtual classroom. And we're very excited uh, today to have um, one, uh, two, two of our uh, colleagues serve as uh, panelists uh, who are here with us to share about their experience dealing with academic integrity. I'd like to extend a special welcome to Dr. Pamela Johnson, um, who is uh, serving as a panelist today, as well as to Dr. Eleanor Nickel, who um, also serving as a panelist. And um, why don't we just go ahead and have you share with us, Dr. Johnson, what you teach and and then we uh, we can open it up to uh, have you share a little bit about uh, you know what are what are some what are some of the challenges that you uh, face with academic integrity or how or how you or how you handle that in your classes. Okay, great. Well, first off, I teach lower division GE classes in the Civilization series, and this is often uh, filled with freshmen and sophomores who may not have been introduced to the kind of academic standards for summarizing, paraphrasing, putting things in your own words, uh, attributing where you're getting your, your material from. That's, that's a problem. And uh, so I often in the past have had many, many cases of academic uh, integrity issues that range from the mundane to not putting things in quotes when you should, to the egregious, which is basically copying, cutting, and pasting entire swaths of material. And so I guess the, the big issue is how do you distinguish the uh, accidental from the egregious and how do you deal with both those incidents? And so over the years, I've come up with lots of different things. Turnitin wasn't always out there. And in the days when we had to try to Google and find things, it took a lot of time. Nowadays, students tend to be so lax that they never plagiarize from books. It's too much trouble. So it makes it a little easier to find these things. But uh, that said, I also have at the upper division level courses where I will sometimes have these incidents occur. And that's more problematic, whether it's at the uh, upper division class level or sadly in the senior thesis level. And you think by then they should have learned. And I think part of the problem is that we all need to be equal warriors in this fight. Although that analogy might not be appropriate or uh, effective at a Mennonite institution. But this is a question I want you to be thinking about for later. So how do we react to plagiarism now, right? So that's the question I want you to be thinking about. One of the books that I read that really, really helped in my uh, reimagining of how we can react to plagiarism is something called Cheating Lessons by James M. Lang. And this is about how to prevent plagiarism from happening in the first part. And it's a very provocative title and it's a great work. His point is that um, if you wanna deter cheaters, in the past, we've always said, all right, give them harsh punishments, that'll stop, right? Just like it has with capital punishment has stopped people murdering each other. Not. 
And so his main takeaway, which I have thought about and put into practice as much as I can, is that the, the more exams or quizzes that you give with lower stakes, the less likely they are to cheat. Makes sense, doesn't it? It may, means more work for us, more grading, but it also eliminates that huge source of pre pressure that students feel when they're faced with a 50% of their grade, 60% of their grade assignment that they haven't worked on to the last minute. And then what do they do? Of course, they give into that temptation. But don't focus on the carrot or the stick method. You need a different tool, the trowel. Focus on scaffolding ahead of time to build up to the assignment so that they've done work little by little. And that's one thing to think about. The second thing is to have pre-exercises on what it means to summarize, what it means to paraphrase, what it means to appropriately quote, things like that. And so I show in all my uh, lower division classes this video and it's in the sources at the end. And it's really great because it's geared to Star Wars. Everybody loves Star Wars. And it talks about that prologue to Star Wars where they have the, the text scrolling through space. Really great. I love it. And then they try to paraphrase, paraphrase a chunk of academic language. And they have to submit it to turn it in to try to get a zero. And I tell them that zero is their hero in this case. Right? You don't want zeros and other things, but you always want a zero in the, this exercise. And then you can follow up with other exercises as you see fit that you can work with that and further have them think about refining and rephrasing because we all know that writing isn't a one-time shot. It's a process. And this assignment is graded merely on completion. There's no grade attached to it except for, did you do it? Did you do it until you got a zero? When we pivoted from face-to-face -to, -face to online Zoom, there are other challenges that we all faced. And one of them was, well, when it's really difficult to monitor or, or uh, big brother the students when they're taking a quiz, well, just change the nature of the quiz. Make it open note, open book give them a lot of time for completion, right? I hate multiple choice, but I've been doing it in the lower division classes for the most part. And they can retake it as many times as they want. It's not a one-shot deal. And then I do this with short answer in the upper division with a little bit more sophistication in the, in the guidelines. And then scaffolding for assignments. I know you all do this probably already. But for me, um, this was something that I had to be more intentional about during the pandemic because I couldn't see them. I couldn't ask them in person in the hallway or in the coffee shop. If you have other tips on scaffolding too, because I think that's one of the real, real ways that we can prevent that last minute pressure on students. So scaffolding, I'm not very good at, and I'm hoping that I hear from you on that. And then exams are just simply a, a higher level of that same low stakes grading. In the lower division classes, I've moved away from exams and focused on projects where we can introduce the scaffolding. And so here's my takeaways from what I've experienced. 
Cheating is still going to happen. You all know that, right? I think what we have to do is not be so obsessed with the few that we know are always going to cheat and focus on helping the majority who might accidentally or, or uh, under pressure cheat, de-incentivize it, and then offer grace upon grace. Right. And I know so many times I've told my students, you know, I forgot to put up the quiz in Moodle or I didn't get to this or uh, I know I was going to do this, but I didn't do it. Well, if we keep telling our students that and then tell them they don't have the same grace, what message are we sending? And then later on, I have a quote from a student email that I think might be good to look at later on. All right. That was kind of whirlwind, breathless, uh, too, uh, too much material in too short a time. But. Thanks for, uh, for listening to that. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. I was uh, curious, you know, is this something you communicated to students or had a discussion with students? You mean my methodology or the way yeah. I was going about this? Yes. Uh, in, a, in a certain sort of low level way, I would say, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And here's uh, what uh, it might help you to do with this that is, I wasn't telling them necessarily I was doing this to prevent them from cheating. I basically said, I'm trying to do this to lessen the level of stress in your lives, which I know during this pandemic is at a high, high level. I was just gonna make a comment that um, you know, this might be something to discuss across GE classes. What are we introducing you know, for all of our students in GE so we're all on, on the same page with new students and, and what's expected. Um, I would imagine every prof talks about, you know, plagiarism, but if we had some sort of unified <laughs> message, it, I don't know, it might be helpful. I think you're right. And I think the idea about avoiding it should be the way we approach it, not if you do this, you will be punished. It would be interesting too, to look at the, at the differences between undergrad and grad or even between schools. I mean, we have two people from um, humanities. What if we also had a panel that had a business person and a scientist, you know, it's, that, that might be fascinating. I mean, you, you guys might really be able to, you know, have a spirited conversation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what cheating looks like or plagiarism looks like in fields like math or, or chemistry. I'm sure it's there, but I'm sure it has a, a different face, a different uh, set of challenges. I know um, Krista Edmiston talks about just the beginning of every lab season, an outbreak of, you know, dozens of these cases. And it reminds me that what Pam says, you know, carrot and stick, we, we have a restorative process, but we also need to be put in place the, that all the adjuncts and colleagues know immediately, um, you know, check the integrity database. Right, that, because that's going to affect so many pieces uh, going forward. And I have a six-year colleague who had a case this semester and didn't know to do that. So, so we're clearly not getting all of the pieces in place, even though in our from our Anabaptist foundations, we we want there to be both opportunities for restoration for the student, for options for the professors. Um, but if we don't start with an understanding that that process is in place, uh, it's hard to it's hard to know how the students will get any impression other than uh, for the ones who would tend to cheat. I hope I get away with. It. 
Yeah, and I just wrote down something that uh, that what you said was really important that uh, Lang talks about, about what do you do after the first incident? So I'll save that if we have time. I had a question that actually I was gonna ask Patty later, but I'll ask people here because I was thinking, you know, we have everything online now, right? So um, how long should we keep our old classes open on Moodle for students to be able to go in there and say, oh, hi, Joe, I took that class last year. Let me get you all my form posts for you. I mean, <laughs> how do students do that? Maybe, I mean, I know you can go in and see who's logged into your class, but you don't know what they're doing with material. And if we're face-to-face, -face, they don't have that access. The class is over. <laughs> um, and so that was something I've been thinking about. I hadn't even thought of that. No, that's fantastic, Faye. The, it, of course they could be doing that. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I'm not checking forum posts where they're talking about their personal experience with, with things against uh, Turnitin or anything. Yeah. And I haven't, I haven't actively noticed somebody, oh, Mariana and uh, um, Veronica seem to have very similar experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, what I mean, Henrietta, is there is there a short answer? Do students remain able to go back into previous semesters classes to look at all their postings? If the course remains open, yes. So from a from a systems perspective, uh, the the technology allows for it. I think there are instructors who close who who, may, who close their class maybe two or, or you know a month after the, the class officially ends and may ask students you know if you have if you have material that you need to access um, you, you keep your own records of your own work so um, let me ask the Luddite question then um, does that just mean reversing the make class visible or is there some other mm -hmm. oh that's okay Patty's not thank you okay yeah. Yeah. I thought of doing that, but I'm realizing that <clears throat> all the quizzes are on there too. So they could go back and see what the answers were to the quizzes, which I've always just kind of, I never thought of this. So I always assumed that, that was just inevitable. Like somebody can do that. Like there's going to yeah. be reading. Yeah. But I never thought about just making the course invisible right after it's done. Because I don't really see why they would have to go back. I mean, their grade book would be the only thing I could imagine they might want to re refer back to that to see why they got that grade or something. But if you closed it a month afterwards, they've seen their grade. I don't see why they would really need to get back to it, but that's a good idea. And you always could let somebody back in right. if, if they really needed to. So this is, I mean, lots of good stuff already, but now one very active thing to improve our online education. Thank you. Well, one reason why you might want to keep a semester open is that I'm working, um, I'm doing a language class. And as we move into the second semester, uh, there are times when I want them to go back to the previous lesson, which is in the present tense, for example, and then they be able to put that in the past. They need access to materials from the last semester. And it's, it's very useful. But yeah. I think that's a little different from a one-off class. Yeah, and in our in the kinesiology master's program, for example, we have comprehensive exams. So we want our students to be able to go back, you know, in their courses if they want to review some of that material for their comps. So different programs might be different, but yeah, I, I went back and closed my undergrad programs. And you know, if they had a burning desire to 
they really missed one of my lectures, they can email me and I'll ha be happy to give it to them. <laughs> so. uh, also, Pam, if you happen to want to in that language class, just hide the quizzes, that's possible too. You can give them access and hide those things that you're concerned might travel you know, forward to other, other groups. So, um, you know, both, both are technically pretty easy to do. So just listening to all these, all these possibilities and, and different approaches to different programs uh, probably explains why is that there is not a unified approach to closing courses. <laughs> so, uh, and so it's not, just, it's not just one thing or one strategy necessarily, uh, but it is, it is a combination often. And at this time, I'd, uh, I'd like to uh, transition to um, to our second panelist, uh, Eleanor, and uh, invite you to share uh, with from your classes. What do you what do you teach, and how do you how do you approach uh, some of the academic integrity issues in your classes that that, that you're teaching? Yes, this conversation has actually led up really nicely to what I had planned to talk about because I'm going to talk about forum cheating and I'm going to talk about quizzes and how long quizzes are open and stuff like that. So our times in my presentations are not going to overlap. So this is great. It's really going to be a, a new thing. So as you guys all know, I have the um, wonderful experience of being the chair of the English department. So we get called in on a lot of plagiarism cases in particular, um, all sorts of academic integrity issues, but we're kind of the plagiarism experts. So when there's a strange case of plagiarism, I actually don't mind being the Sherlock Holmes of plagiarism. So people will come to me and say, there is this strange situation where there's five people, but the paper is like weirdly similar. And so I, I'm happy to do that. It's actually kind of interesting. If I don't know the student, I don't have like that emotional wrenching that goes along with that. So I'm like, hey, you know, person I don't know, I'll like look into this whole situation. So we do a lot of that. And of course, I'm a huge advocate for Turnitin. I've given Turnitin workshops for many years and I use Turnitin assignments all the time. But I thought that today I might talk about a couple of things that I do that I don't know that a lot of other people do because I think a lot of people use Turnitin for their assignments and it's pretty easy and simple and you kind of know about that. Although I'm happy to talk about some of the weirdnesses of the Turnitin Moodle interface can be a little complicated sometimes. But I wanted to talk about two things that I do that you might not do. And the first one is the plagiarism plugin for forums because we were talking about how, how are we gonna know that Marianella and Veronica from two different semesters wrote their personal experience and it was exactly the same. We wouldn't know that if we didn't have the other student. So I'm gonna talk about that and then synchronous Moodle classes, which is something that I've kind of gotten on this bandwagon about. And I wrote about this in the HRSS newsletter, like having class on Moodle altogether, which allows you to do quizzes that are only open for five minutes, 10 minutes, and everybody takes them at the same time. So first of all, talk a little bit about the plagiarism plugins. And just out of curiosity, has anybody used these plagiarism plugins on forums before? Okay, good. There's at least a few of you that don't already know everything I'm about to say. I learned about these from an adjunct, actually. So this was a great example of the first thing. Assignment 1.1 is a forum. And as you will see, it's a very, very open-ended assignment because we're using it as kind of a pretest like to see how they can do as they're coming in. So it just says, choose a topic that you are passionate about and make the best argument that you can in three paragraphs. 
So we want to see kind of how they're able to make an argument without having had any content. And then they later will go back and realize that they could have done it a lot better later. So it's kind of a pretest sort of a thing. But this is also eminently plagiarizable, obviously. Like this is the kind of assignment you're not supposed to do if you don't want people to cheat because it's just like really broad and they could just cut and paste anything. So here's what it looks like if you use plagiarism plugins. And it just so happened that the very first student, there is a really great example of why plagiarism plugins are useful. And she chose childhood vaccination. And this is what the plagiarism plugin looks like. It's not at all intrusive. It's just this little tiny thing down in the corner below the forum that has an originality score. And you just set this up when you're doing your forum. So in the edit settings on the forum, you can click plagiarism plugin and one of the weird things about it is that before the student writes anything, you cannot see that you have done it. There's no like <clears throat> evidence on Moodle that you have a plagiarism plugin. There's no like little icon or anything like that. So sometimes I'm thinking, did I do it? Did I do it? But you just have to look at your settings and it, you know, you can't know until a student puts something in there, but then you'll see it. And so most of the times you just ignore them. Like if you look at the response that somebody made it says 0%, like I'm not gonna click on that. I feel good about the fact that it says 0%. But 37%, I would click on that. So you click on it and it takes you to a document viewer that looks exactly the same as a paper, like a real official paper. And we quickly realized that we do need to have a conversation with this student. She has obviously looked at an article and there's the title of it, but then you see here, just like in a you know paper report, a pretty significant chunk here in, in pink, you know, that is taken from a source. But then you keep going and you see that the student then went on to write her own opinion about her own child and, you know, why she chose to vaccinate her child and other people chose not to. So this is not somebody, especially since it's assignment one, this doesn't speak to me as like someone who's cheating in some kind of horrific manner. This is more a conversation that needs to happen because the student did write her own stuff. And then it kind of goes back into, there's a little bit more there. And the student did kind of cut and paste this thing at the end, which indicates sort of a desire to cite, even though this is assignment one and they don't know how to cite yet. So in a situation like this, we've had some conversations in my department about, do you go through the official reporting process for something like this? Because Marshall mentioned, and I agree, it's, it's so important if there's a plagiarized paper or a test that was cheated on, we have got to be putting those into the database because otherwise we won't know that the student did it in all five of their classes. However, I would not report something like this. I would not say, okay, this person put a sentence that was taken from an article in her first forum, <laughs> now it's on her record for all time. However, I would, as any of you would, definitely open up a conversation with the student and show the report and say, hey, you know what, you know, this can happen so easily, but you need to be careful because if this was a real paper and it was a major assignment, and depending on who the instructor was and how frustrated they are with plagiarism at that exact moment, this could be a really big problem. So then it would just be an opportunity to talk to the student. But if I didn't have the plagiarism plugin turned on, which takes about 30 seconds, I would have known from reading this that something's going on and then it would have been like Pam said before we had turned it in and we're having to like Google threads and all this kind of stuff. So it's inc incredibly useful. And if you look at some of the other ones, you'll notice that most of the time you can just ignore it. So 
like the next student came out 13%. I'm not going to click on that. You know, I'm not going to click on every single one of them, but it's really nice to have it there when you need it. So I advocate for this. Does this pick up when a student copies from another student's forum post? If the other instructor used Turnitin, it does. So it's kind of like with papers. Like if somebody turns something into Faye's class, but she didn't require Turnitin, and then they turn it into my class, and I do require Turnitin, it doesn't show up as plagiarized because Faye didn't require Turnitin. So they can use it until they hit two people in a row who use Turnitin, which is why I think we need to advertise the plagiarism plugins, because if everybody's using them, you know, and so Marshall's right, like you're not usually going to put one on there if it's like, tell me about your experiences. But I've kind of gotten to the point now where I just do it for everything because it just like, who knows? Like, yeah, maybe you, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would cheat on. But if students have had all these forums before, it's just so easy to cut and paste somebody else's. So the plagiarism plugins are my first tip. My next tip is the synchronous Moodle issue. So I talked about this in the HRSS newsletter, but when COVID first hit last March, I had a Monday night class that first week after spring break, and it was six to nine. And I was not prepared to just cancel it. And we were given the option of like, you can just cancel classes or you can have them online. But we're going through the Chronicles of Narnia and I didn't want to skip the first one. <laughs> like, okay, we're just not going to worry about that first book because there were only as many weeks as there were Chronicles of Narnia and I wasn't going to miss one. So I just went for, I didn't even know how to use Zoom. I'd never used Zoom. Nobody had used Zoom. Nobody at that moment, except the COL knew how to use Zoom. So what I did was I just said, okay, everyone, go on Moodle at six and something will open up and you'll do it. And that worked great. Everybody just went on Moodle and then they all were on there at the same time. And this is what I've done ever since. And I do Zoom too, but there are many class periods, like the one I just taught at 10, I'm doing this like at least 75, 80% of the time. And the reason why you should do this is because A, it feels more like real college, like when they're actually having to get up in the morning and sit down at the computer and you make them like get up in the morning and get out of bed and they have to be in class at nine and they can't just do it in the middle of the night. B, I'm on call to answer any questions. So sometimes the, the forum that I wrote will turn out not to be clear. And so people will be sending me questions like, do you want us to do this? Or do you want us to do that? And then I'll write an email to everybody. Okay, I've now had three questions. <laughs> Apparently that wasn't clear. Also number three, you can do quizzes that are only open for a short period of time. Because in my traditional undergraduate classes, I did not want to rewrite every single quiz because I give a lot of quizzes and just make them into something like Pam's describing, that's the ideal right? Rewrite it so that it's open book and it's something else. Couldn't handle it, not enough time. But I just open them for 10 minutes. So at the beginning of class, this quiz is open from 12 to 12, 15 or whatever it might be. And if you don't get it, you don't get it. And of course you can always override. So if there's a student who has the really good reason why they couldn't be there and that does happen, I'll override it. And I'll be like, well, everybody else in the whole class took it in 10 minutes. So only that one person could theoretically cheat. So it really cuts down on the cheating. And now that I'm thinking about closing my classes, that makes me really happy too, because now they're kind of out there. And that makes me feel like, do I have to rewrite? Like, and this is hundreds of quizzes, because I give a lot of low stakes quizzes, like all the time, constantly. So I don't want to rewrite hundreds of quizzes. So I've been putting them all on Moodle feeling like, oh man, is this it? Is this the end? Like, do I have to rewrite hundreds of quizzes now? But I could close my classes. This is good. So I'm a huge fan of the synchronous Moodle thing. It sounds kind of weird, but 
it works. And then students have conversations too that are more organic and more natural because their conversation is happening in real time instead of like two days later, somebody responds. And the first person long since stopped caring about that topic, but if everybody's actually writing back and forth. And so I've been doing a lot of the, the quizzes that are just, you only have this much time and it really cuts down on, you know, how much cheating can happen. Yes, they could still have five people in the same room, one of whom has done the reading, and then they could all be, what's number five, you know, they could all be doing that. So that's, you know, that's going to happen. But I've learned that if you give them a short enough window, they just don't have time to cheat. And even with my quizzes are all closed book because it's like, did you do the reading? So yes, they could open the book and they could look. And I would be willing to bet any amount of money that that has happened over the past year that somebody has opened the book. Okay, I can't remember what city the novel takes place in, so I'm going to look. But the less time they have, the less time they have to do that. They can't go through the book searching and searching for every answer because they're going to run out of time. So that is my, um, those are my two tips. Plagiarism plugins for the forums. Totally do it. It's easy. It takes no time at all. And then have your class at the same time so that everybody has to take the quiz at the same time. And this might be useful for finals. I know I'm gonna be giving synchronous final exams where it's like, well, I'm gonna put the test out there and they only have so much time. So they can't, they won't have time to send it to one of those places where they fill out your test for you or whatever. So just keep the time limit short enough that they can't send it to a test taking website or whatever. But I've discovered, you know, one of the questions Henrietta asked was, have you seen a big difference going virtual? I'm teaching upper division English majors, so that is obviously a certain population, but they still fail their quizzes on a very regular basis. <laughs> like, and in fact, the last quiz I gave, I was really upset because the average was only 57 out of 100. And so I was like, 57% of the reading got done on this book. Like, that is so depressing. It was the end of the book. It was like so important that they had read the end of this book at this big surprise ending and everything. But there's enough people failing that it gives, it warms your heart because you're like, oh, well, you failed, but you didn't cheat. Plus the, the book I'm teaching is not that Googleable. Like it's not a very common book. So it's not like Hamlet or something. <laughs> so I think that, you know, a lot of the time your grades haven't really changed. I haven't seen like that kind of suspicious stuff where suddenly this person that shows no evidence of ever having read anything in their life in every other setting is getting perfect scores on all of the quizzes or anything like that. I'm seeing like a typical range and the students you expect to do well, do well. And the people that, you know, don't do as well, don't do as well. So it's not foolproof, obviously, Pam, which is why Pam's right that the best strategy is to totally redo the assessment so that it's something that you can Google and all of that. But there's just was a time issue with the last, <laughs> last couple semesters. So that's been kind of my triage thing. They can still cheat, but at least they only have 10 minutes to do it in. I know I talked to um, Alan Thompson over in science and they're having huge problems where they would put out a chemistry test. And then there's these websites where you submit the test and a person takes it for you and sends it back. And this was found out because six students did the same thing with the same website and all of them came back the same and wrong, apparently, just to add insult to injury. Like the person who was doing it didn't know the answer. So they were all wrong, but they were identically wrong. So I was thinking, you know, what if you just put it up like one question at a time or something? And you said, okay, you have 10 minutes to answer question one, closed. 10 minutes to answer question two, closed. 
10 minutes to answer question three. Like you could do that because then they wouldn't have time. But if you just say, here's the final exam, you have two hours, they can more easily. So sometimes just shrinking the amount of time they have, they're not as resourceful as they could be, which is to our advantage. <laughs> so don't think of like how to do it really fast. The book, by the way, Pam, was Imitation of Life by Fanny Hurst from the 1930s, which was made into two film versions, which is why we're reading it in lit and film. But it's not, fortunately, it's not something that there's a lot of summaries of, which is probably why it came out 57%, I don't know. I really empathize with your 57% in an upper division class uh, average. I just think it's what we're, what we're all seeing that the pandemic has been so long that people are beaten down. I mean, it, you know, no one anecdote can, uh, can indicate that, but, you know, I've got an honors lead class where it's down to like 85% of the people are finishing assignments. It's, it's just a brutal semester. If you only gave, like I said, 10 minutes for each question, I mean, I don't know how you take tests. I go through and see which ones I know and I answer those first, and then I go back and struggle with the other ones. So that would take that away and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, that's true. I think if, and I've never had this problem, but I think if I had gone through what Alan Thompson went through, I might be willing to <laughs> curtail. Cause I understand like you go through, you look at the whole thing and you get a sense of the big picture. And, but it would also, it would kind of help the students though because they wouldn't have to time manage. And that's something that they're so not good at. When you give them a two hour exam, they don't keep track of the time and then they you know, spend way too much time on the first question and they don't, so I'm, I'm writing on the board you know, in real time, like you should be on question two by this point. So I agree with you, Faith. That's, that's true, but and, and, you know, just because I do it that way doesn't mean that the students do it that way or even if they have thought to do it that way. So I should probably talk about you know, ways that you can take tests and what your best way is for you and things you should consider. I don't know. I think if I were in science, I would be really tempted to do like one question at a time during the two hours. Like one question is going to appear at 12 and then one's going to appear at 1210. And then because then they won't have time to submit anything because that's apparently what's been the big issue is sending it to this website to have it be taken by someone. But they can't do it in 10 minutes, I'm sure. Yeah, I think Sean Wirtz or somebody, you know, is there what, you know, when, when he does his test, he's there watching everybody, but I don't know. You, they, they can still do something else on their computer. So, yeah, yeah they have, they're aware of all the ways that you can still cheat even when you've got these uh, outside vendors with the control and all. I just think something uh, Faye said is, is so important though. We know that our minority first-generation students that their great weakness is high stakes, high stake tests. And we know that's a, that's a national issue. And I think all that we can do, I know when Pam and I team taught a class at the beginning of the pandemic, just take what seems a ridiculous amount of time just to talk about test taking. I actually think that the idea of doing it one question at a time, I want somebody to try this. I need to pay someone in science to try this. I think it could take some of the pressure off of them, to be honest, because I know that having the camera on adds to anxiety. So now they're even more nervous because they're being watched, which I can only imagine how weird that would feel. But I'm thinking like if you opened up and you said, do this question, that's all they have to think about. So for Faye, it's like, I want to get an overview. But I think for most students, it would be more like just do one at a time, just do one at a time. It might be less anxiety producing. Just focus on this one question. 
Now, maybe their heartbeat is going because I only gave them 10 minutes, but like if that is enough time to answer that question without them having to rush or anything, like if they can really do it in 10 minutes, you know, that might actually make it easier. You just look at this one and then that one's done. And then you look at this one and you're not even having to think about time management because the system would be doing it for you. So I don't or if they're completely overwhelmed with that one question because they have no idea what the answer is. They can't write anything and they're sitting there being anxious for 10 minutes. I don't know. That could happen, but that's going to happen. And if they totally don't know the answer to any of the questions, like that would be anxious no matter what happened. <laughs> but it, it might, I think I'm, I, I'm in total agreement with Pam. I think it would be better overall than like the camera thing where they're being watched. So something maybe. I don't know if we have time to go into a couple of things. This really should have been longer. I, I just wish that we had more time together and that more people would have been able to hear uh, Eleanor and, and some of the interactions here. But but you've, you've heard about chegging, right? That's one of the things that Eleanor's talking about that, that people are doing. And the worst thing about that is they're posting our exams and our PowerPoints without our permission to the site in order to get access to other things. And on pandemic pedagogy, which by the way, I should have put in the presentation has saved my butt so many times this, uh, this and last semester, well, even the semester before, uh, the, uh, a professor shared her policy that explicit, explicitly states, you cannot use my PowerPoints. You cannot upload my exams. That is an, a clear integrity violation. By doing so, uh, you have violated the, the integrity rules of this class and you will suffer the uh, consequences of extreme indiscretion. Yeah, but it, the amount of traffic on shaking, I think this article talks about something like 200, 300%. There's a reason for that. I need to read that because I've, I've heard about it, but I haven't really looked into it on the level of like reading articles and finding out more. And it's not just that, it's Course Hero, it's Quizlets, it's all these other things that uh, incentivize the uploading of other people's materials so that you can get access to material. Yeah. And students don't think anything of it. Yeah, yeah if, if uh, uh, you're using, you know, textbook publisher exams, you know, those are, they're, you know, paying and get and getting access to them and putting up putting them up there. I had reason to go on the Course Hero page for Com 109, the course I just showed you, because somebody had taken a paper from there. But we all use Turnitin, so they don't get away with it. But you go on like Course Hero, Com 109, Fresno Pacific University, and there's like papers for every assignment. And I'm thinking, you're totally going to get caught. Like every single one of us uses Turnitin. <laughs> But they think somehow that this is a good idea. So it's like essay number one, here's four examples. Essay number two, here's four examples. I'm like, good luck. Like it didn't work out for the student that we were, but I looked at it and it was just really, but I'm thinking, okay, there's teachers that don't use Turnitin that that's gonna work. So yeah, we need to be really thoughtful and really careful about these things. And I think sometimes compressing the time is one of the best things you can do. I wanna share an anecdote. Uh, which is kind of a cautionary tale. Uh, we, we say, oh, everyone at Fresno Pacific, all the instructors use Turnitin. It's not the case because I had a colleague that I would rag and rag and rag to use Turnitin. 
And this colleague, they said, oh no, I don't have to use Turnitin because my students don't plagiarize. Well, eventually I wore him down to the point where he, he said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And then all of a sudden it's like, why this semester do I have so many cases of plagiarism? <laughs> well, go figure. <laughs> but, but it was an eye opener for them because then they realized, well, yes, they are plagiarizing. I'm just not catching them. And I don't know if we can make it a requirement, but can we at least make it attractive enough? No, because if you find the plagiarism, what do you have to do? You have to submit this long form that takes at least two hours to document all this. And that really, so I wrote down, because when we were talking about Marshall's question about reporting to this integrity database, if we could somehow streamline the form for a first offense, because I don't think a first offense should necessarily be grounds for, let's say somebody who is an honor student. If you have a first offense, if you have any offense in the academic integrity database, you can't be eligible for certain honors. You can't be eligible for certain housing situ situations. And so the, the book, um, Cheating Lessons, it talks about, yes, we still have to report them and they have to go to a database. But if we could just remove from the first instance, if it's inadvertent. Yeah, or even have, says we have shades of a first offense. I mean, like this grad student that, that I was talking about, first offense, plagiarized, directly copied 65% of, of an old student's paper. You know, didn't know. But, you know, if it was a few sentences that they forgot to put quotes on, those are not the same. Right. But yet we don't distinguish between them currently for reporting. And I know if I have a really good student who messed up and there's a two sentences in their paper that they did not put in quotes, am I supposed to follow through with that? Or is there some sort of level where we can say, well, this is just egregious. The student bought a paper, even if it's the first offense, that's beyond the pale. Because otherwise, students and professors are going to be reluctant to report instances of, of minor academic integrity. Like you see another student look over on someone else's paper. It's a quick look. It doesn't happen again. A student sees it and says, I'm not gonna report that because I know what'll happen to the other student. I'm not gonna be that kind of person. This conversation has raised a lot of good questions. I think about the philosophy, about strategies and approaches, and, and also some of the challenges that remain, I think, at, the course level and, and perhaps even at the at the process level. Um, the purpose of these roundtables are to have conversations and clearly it seems to me more more conversation could be had had about this. And I yeah I agree. What are your feelings about students reusing their own work? That's probably a whole nother conversation. So it has to be addressed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I want to thank uh, everyone for attending and I want to thank especially our panelists for sharing about your, your classes, your students, your strategies. We appreciate your time and uh, we hope that uh, this, these conversations can continue in, in other forms and um, we also can come to uh, you know, more uh, creative ways of, uh, of addressing these. So thank you. Thank you for, for attending today.